A few weeks ago, John asked me a question that brought things back to my mind. He asked if I had ever spoken on Ecclesiastes, and I think I have. But what I remembered um, more clearly when he asked that was um, a Bible study that I used to conduct in Vancouver. Uh, our church was near the downtown core, so we would go at lunchtime and have Bible studies either in the hospital complex with medical staff or down in the business section with business people. And absolutely by far the most successful study that we ever conducted was on Ecclesiastes. And John reminded me of how fondly um, that group uh, engaged actually with with scriptures, so some of them not followers of Christ at all, and you know, kind of awkwardly reading this strange book in the Bible. But as I thought about it, and again have thought about it this week, Ecclesiastes is a wonderful book. It is a a, a book that is absolutely packed with wisdom. And if way back in the eighties, I guess it was in Vancouver, it was relevant. It is absolutely relevant today as well, and um, I want to talk about it today. I'm going to read probably a longer passage than most times I'll read, but I want you to get the feel for it, and here's what Ecclesiastes says in the first couple of chapters. Now, it's written by a person who calls himself Colet, um, which is kind of a strange word that means teacher or guide or something like that, and it is pretty well assumed that the person who writes is Solomon. And so Solomon is the one that we're going to talk about today because he represents the Enneagram type that we would like to consider. But think about Solomon as the author of Ecclesiastes. The words of the teacher, Colette that was, son of David, king in Jerusalem. So that's mainly why um, scholars are convinced it was Robert, or <laughs> Robert, Solomon. His name wasn't Robert Solomon or anything, just Solomon. Listen to what he says. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Isn't that a great way for a book in the Bible to start? Meaningless. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises, the wind blows to the south and turns to the north, round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear is full of hearing. What has been will be again. What, there is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new. It was here already, long ago. No one remembers the former generations, and even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. I, the teacher, was king over Israel and Jerusalem. I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the, the heavens. What a heavy burden God has placed on mankind. I've seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, chasing after the wind. What is crooked cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. 
I said to myself, look, I've increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I have experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. Then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly. But I learned that this too is chasing after the wind. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. I said to myself, come now. I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is madness. And what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired male and female singers and a harem as well, the delights of a man's heart. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes deserved, desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor, and this was the reward for all my toil. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, Everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. Then I turned my thoughts to consider wisdom and also madness and folly. What more can the king's successors do than has already been done? I saw that wisdom is better than folly, just as light is better than darkness. The wise have eyes in their heads, but the fool walks in the darkness. But I came to realize that the same fate overtakes them both. Then I said to myself, the fate of the fool will overtake me also. What then do I gain by being wise? I said to myself, this too is meaningless. For the wise like the fool um, will not be long remembered. The days have already come when both have been forgotten. Like the fool, the wise too must die. So I hated life because the work that it was done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaning meaningless, a chasing after the wind. I hated all the things I had toiled for under the sun, because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether that person will be wise or foolish, they, they, yet they will have control over all of the fruit of my toil, into which I have poured my effort and skill under the sun. This too is meaningless. My heart began, began to despair over all my toilsome labor under the sun. For a person may labor with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, and then you must leave all they own to another who has not toiled for it. This too is meaningless and a great misfortune. What do people get for all the toil and anxious striving with which they labor under the sun? All their days their work is grief and pain, even at night. Their minds do not rest. This too is meaningless. A person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. This, too, I see, is from the hand of God, for without him who can eat or find enjoyment. To the person who pleases him, God gives wisdom, knowledge, and happiness. But to the sinner, he gives the task of gathering and storing up wealth to hand it over to the one who pleases God. This, too, is meaningless and chasing after the wind.
What do we learn from Solomon? As uh, I try to pull up, this will let me show you what I want to show you. Here we go. Solomon is an example of type 7 in the Enneagram. And so type 7 is the need to avoid pain. And we'll just see how that's kind of played out in the life of Solomon in just a moment. Um, as we understand how, how we sort of plot our way through this, come now. Here's what this person tends to be like. So I'm just going to run through these very quickly. Uh, the person who needs to avoid pain will be the sort of person who is always on the go, has a wide range of interests, has childlike enthusiasm and energy, has maybe curious, sparkling eyes, many ongoing professional and creative projects on the go. He's upbeat or she's upbeat and optimistic, the glass half full kind of outlook, always well liked and popular uh, among the peers. Now, as we see how the um, particular trait that we're looking at today plays out, um, we will find that once again, um, the need to avoid pain has arrows to and from, um, which are the outhouse and the orchard. So by now, maybe you get what I mean by that. Those are the two terms that kind of help me understand. So from every one of these, this computer is rebelling against me big time today. Um, for every one of these, um, there is an outhouse, and that's the one where the arrow points away from the, the trait. And there's an orchard, uh, which is every time you have an arrow pointing back to the straight. So I'll just walk over here and press these buttons instead for a moment. So this is the outhouse. Um, I'm sorry, this is not the outhouse. This is the orchard for the person who is a type 7 on the Enneagram. So with the, the tendency to avoid pain, when the person is doing well, they are a person who can um, fully engage their minds, um, their perception, their thinking processes to understand. When the person is not in a good place, um, the outhouse that the person would go to, on the other hand, is to be perfect. So this person can become very critical of the world and all of its ways. And so it, even as I say that much to you, and you remember what we've read so far from Ecclesiastes, here's Solomon, here's Kohelet. He is someone who is desperate to find whatever it is in life that is the path to avoiding pain or the path to finding meaning. And yet when he is not doing well, when he realizes that there is this toil that seems never ending and there are these cycles that just tend to repeat themselves over and over again, um, he becomes very critical and he says, what's the point in any of this? What's the point? In fact, he sort of uh, becomes... Um, a pessimistic uh, existentialist who says there's no point in anything that we do and everything is meaningless. It's like trying to grab the wind. And that's a lovely little expression. If you've ever tried to grasp wind, you can't do it. You can see what the wind does and you can maybe get a hold of the effect of the wind, but you can't get a hold of the wind. And that's the way Kohelet describes the world as he perceives it. 
Going a little bit farther, the wisdom that we get from Kohelet, I'll just pull them all up here and then we can talk about them. Um, there. Got a glass of water as well. What is the wisdom that um, is sown into um, the scripture stories about <clears throat> Solomon and, and his perception of life? So what does he do? Solomon says, I have been given wisdom. I've been given more wisdom than your average guy. So I'm going to have a look at everything that I can get my hands on and get my mind around um, in pursuit of the meaning that there might be in life. And so he thinks about sort of category by category. And if you read the rest of the book of Ecclesiastes, you, f you find the same sort of formula where he says, okay, so that didn't work. So then I put my mind to this, and that didn't work. And then I thought about this, and that didn't work. And every time he has a new sort of experience that he launches into, um, he says, and, and by the way, I had at my disposal all of the resources to fully engage every one of these pursuits. And you might think that he becomes a bit of a braggart. He tells us in what we've just read already this morning um, that he planted vineyards everywhere and orchards everywhere. He bought slaves. Um, he had all kinds of them. He had 700 wives and 300 concubines. Why? So he was a person of excess. Um, whatever he could do, he did to the limit. He did to the nth degree. And he said, I, I, have, I have everything at my disposal. He built um, a beautiful palace for himself only after he had built a phenomenal temple for God. Um, the Solomon Temple um, is the temples whose, whose history and beauty travels all the way into the time of Jesus. And Solomon built it. Remember that his father David was forbidden to build a temple for, for God. God said, I don't need a house, and I don't want you to build my house. Your son after you is going to build my house. Um, and so he lets Solomon build it. He builds this beautiful building for, for God as a temple, and then he builds a phenomenal palace for himself, and he amasses incredible wealth and, and treasuries of, of all of the wealth that have come his way. Um, there's the, the little account of the Queen of Sheba, who heard about how brilliant he was, and she made her way um, to Jerusalem just to meet Solomon and to tap in on his wisdom. If, if you go and speak to your Ethiopian friends, they will tell you that the union between Solomon and the Queen of Sheba, and tell me with 700 wives and 300 concubines, that didn't happen. Right? The union between Solomon and the Queen of Sheba is in the, is in the lineage um, of, of the nation of, of Ethiopia. And so um, a great deal of Hebrew worship came from Israel to Ethiopia, um, thousands and thousands and thousands of years ago, probably because of the connection with the Queen of Sheba and Solomon. So um, any of your Ethiopian friends will be delighted to tell you the great story about all of that. What, what, what happens? Solomon says, um, 
My thesis is everything is meaningless. There's no point. And, you know, in, in rehearsing the reasons that he has made these conclusions, we come across these wonderful texts and passages where he, he just observes really shrewdly what life is like. And he, he dares to say the things that we might think. And, and they all accrue to his conclusion that, you know what, there, there's, there's no meaning. There's no way to figure it out. You, you can't grasp the importance of this aspect because it's like wind. You're, trying, you're like trying to, to grab the wind. So what does he look at? The number of things that um, he sort of gazes at and studies and applies his mind to, uh, knowledge, amusements, possessions, even madness and folly. And I don't know what he did to explore that, but he says he did it um, with his mind intact. He had a good hard look at madness and folly. He looks at work at length. He has a philosophical approach to things and says, so I thought, well, is there meaning here? And how can you sort categories through in your mind? And he said, you really can't. Wealth to no end was his. And he was, as promised by God, the wisest man that lived. He, he was given um, a plethora of wisdom that he could apply in his life. He had a rather sad outcome in his wife uh, in his life because he fell in love with women who were not um, of the Jewish faith. They were from lands beyond Israel. And they convinced him to build temples for their gods. And he began worshiping the other gods. And th the things that at the beginning um, loomed very large in terms of the possibility of his being a very significant thinking, contributing leader in Israel kind of dwindled away into his um, despair and then in his laxity of character and morality and, and ethics. But in the text of Ecclesiastes, um, we kind of go fishing for anything that does challenge his thesis that does challenge his conclusion. I mean, is this simply a book of nihilism? Is it, is it a book of existential despair? Um, it resonates with us, and we say, yeah, those very things that he has observed, which have led him to conclude that there is no meaning. We experience those things. Did Solomon really not find any meaning in those things? So in the, the text, we find little, little phrases and verses here and there, and, and then we find a very significant conclusion that, that does answer the question, Solomon, are you right? Kohelet, are you right in proposing that everything is meaningless? There's a little verse in the third chapter that kind of subtly suggests something that has, has really prompted a lot of, of broad thinking in terms of um, missiology and reaching people who, who haven't yet committed to follow Christ and come through Christ to the living God. In the third chapter, he, he just simply says, he has also set eternity in their heart. And we begin to wonder, so is there really no meaningless, 
no meaning. Did Solomon Kohelet, did you find no meaning whatsoever? And I think we would have to say he, he did. He, he found little nuggets of meaning that actually began to sort his experience. And that phrase by itself is quite informative and quite instructive, that he has set eternity in their heart. While we are dealing with the existential despair, um, that's the philosophical label for feeling blah about life, feeling like the pandemic is never going to end and everything is bad and it's probably going to be worse. It, it's, you know, it's what bad thing can happen next? It probably will. In the middle of that, Kohelet says, but God has set eternity in their hearts. What does that mean? It, it, it means that while we are on this treadmill of despair, given the experiences of our lives, there's something inside us that gives us a hopeful glimpse and says there is eternity. So if, if this life is all that there is, and if that's the conclusion of Ecclesiastes, then we also come to despair at the end of it all and say, so what was the point? I made all this money, and my son has, has been a wastrel. He has he's spent it all, and it's gone. Everything I worked for is gone. Um, I, I, I built all these things, and they, they've basically deteriorated, or they've been misused or abused and uh, everything. But Kohelet Solomon says, God has placed eternity in our hearts, which means that every time we sink towards despair, there's something in our hearts that knows that beyond this is the answer, that beyond this is the place of meaning. And Kohelet gets to the point of, of being quite clear about that. In the meantime, he says, as far as um, working and enjoying life, he says, who can eat and have enjoyment without him? So he, he's saying, so the best thing I've concluded you can do is to eat, drink, and marry, because, and then he thinks, but wait, you can't enjoy anything really without God. So he, he begins to pair his understanding that there's the eternity sown into our hearts, into our, into our sensibilities, our, our identities. Um, and when we think about that, then we come back to life and we say, okay, all of these things can be meaningless unless they are experienced in conjunction with a relationship with God. And then all of a sudden, the things that were meaningless uh, have meaning rush back into them, and they become meaningful. And so Ecclesiastes is this treatise on what would happen if there were no God, and we tried to find meaning in the things that we would typically pursue, um, assuming that they bring meaning to life. And Kohelet says, when you try to live life as though that is your way to avoid pain, you can't enjoy the good things of life without God. You can't enjoy the, the fruit of your labor um, without understanding that eternity is looking back at your labor and God has been with you as you have been doing your work and God will watch in the next generation and the generation to come. Um, 
So all the way at the end of, of his, his long philosophical treatise um, that has, I think, um, betrayed his actual faith, if we could say that, that all things considered, it's meaningless. Uh, and he just wants to say unless. And the unless is the big story of Ecclesiastes. Everything that we pursue as humankind can, in fact, be meaningless if we don't understand that there's eternity beyond this life, that what brings meaning to the activities of this life is that eternity follows this life, and that the things that we do enjoy properly in this life, we need to do with God by our side and say that when there is something that is blessed, it's not because I deserved it. It's a blessing that has come in the context of my relationship with God. So at the end of the whole story, uh, having, been, having also given us some lovely passages of how to raise our children, how to understand that in life there's a season for everything, a time and a season, and all, all the little things that you would recognize maybe in popular music or poetry or, or liter literature, and you realize, oh, that was, it was Kohelet, it was Solomon who said that in, in the book of Ecclesiastes. Finally, he said this. The conclusion, when all has been heard, is fear God and keep his commandments, because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, whether everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. What's the conclusion? Clear as anything. All of the things that we may pursue in life um, are meaningless on, on their own appearance on, 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 the, on their own merit. But when we understand that this life is lived in the light of the life to come, when we understand that this life is to be lived in partnership with the God who created us, um, then we tune our lives and we say, what is important to me is this, to fear God and keep his commandments. What does it mean to fear God? It doesn't mean to be afraid of God although we could probably use a bit more of the afraid of God aspect. The fear of God is a covenant term. It's, it's a term that is full-orbed, um, that says, I, I live my life with the sure, steady awareness of the presence of God, and I live my life to worship him, to be a person who is thankful to him, and to be a person who gives glory to him, to, who acknowledges him, uh, and, and to be one who names his or her relationship with God as the commitment to fear God with, with all of life. And then how does that work out? It works out in my saying, and whatever he tells me to do, I will do. I've mentioned Jordan Peterson a few times, and I think one of the most startling things that he says is that he's terrified that there is a God, because if there is a God, then the requirements that we say we understand by virtue of claiming to be related to him are, are, are just beyond reach. They're terrifying that we would find ourselves having to give account for, you said you were Christians, you said you were believers in God, so therefore, what was your life about? It's a prophetic 
point. And Kohelet says the same thing, that we live our lives in, in fear of God, desiring to keep his commandments because at the end of the day, he's going to make a judgment about everything we've done, good or bad. That's consistent entirely with the New Testament that talks about the judgment seat of Christ. When our works are laid before him, and we are judged not with a view to punishment in that case, but we're judged with a view to reward. The Lord Jesus looks at our lives and he says, here's the pile of what you've done, here's what was good, and here's what was good for nothing. And the good for nothing pile will be consumed, and only the pile of what's good will be left there. That'll be a shocking day. Um, Hopefully we're not going to see each other's piles, right? But it'll be a shocking day of, of final enlightenment about how our lives actually truly did form up. Several years ago, I, I, I spent about a week with a, a group of people in, in um, Charleston, South Carolina. And it, it was one of those weeks that you sort of look back and pinch yourself and say, was, was I really there? Does that place really exist? So there's a person who was a real estate developer from Atlanta, and he bought a plantation in South Carolina. Um, this plantation was phenomenal. It was 100 acres um, on, on the Atlantic in South Carolina, in, in sheltered by the, the peninsula part of the state out there. And he had, um, there was a plantation house somewhere down the inland waterways that he wanted. So they floated the house to this 100-acre site and refurbished that house on that site. He had a 1,000 head of deer for hunting. He had stocked ponds for fishing. Um, he had a library that when he showed us around, it was a matter of saying, this book is important for this reason, this book is important for this reason. He had General Lee's Bible on, on his bookshelf. He had a cache of guns that was staggering. Now, this is the South, right? And when, when someone dared ask him, how many of these guns have you fired? He looked back, you know, and said, why, all of them, of course. Um, his was a story of phenomenal success. I mean, he had a beautiful Learjet or some other kind of executive jet nearby that he could just take and go wherever he wanted to go. Um, in fact, one day that we were there, he had been to New York City and back that day on, on his jet. Um, In the middle of it all, I, I remember just sort of thinking around and looking around and saying, is this right? Um, and the, the sort of epiphany moment for me was when we met his, his chief gardener, groundskeeper kind of guy. And we'd seen this person around the grounds, and he, he, he really had that demeanor of, um, a, a bygone era, he would come and say, yes, I know, hold his hat down, and would hardly look up 
just to give his monosyllabic answers. And I thought, you know, this is not right because here is a man who's being oppressed by the wealth and power of this landowner who is rich beyond imagination. One day, Harry said, I want you to meet my, my groundskeeper. He said, you've probably seen him around. And everybody sort of looked around. There were 10 or 12 of us. And we sort of thought, yeah, we have seen that guy. This could be awkward. So when this man came in, uh, Harry said he was the uh, groundskeeper's grandson who took care of this place with my, my grandparents um, in its original state. And he said, um, I love him so much that he, he wants to keep working for me. And he said, I know he's, I know he's good for it because he says, we're both deacons at the Baptist church down the road. And he introduced us to someone who was incredibly different from him in, in every way and put his arm around him and said, he's my brother. We're both deacons down at the Baptist church. And the groundskeeper had a brilliant smile. And the times that we saw him on the few days after that, he greeted us and called us brothers in, in this old regard. The story that was important in all of this was that at the height of his wealth and power and success, um, this man found himself on a beach in South Carolina thinking about taking his life because it was absolutely meaningless to him. His life was empty. His marriage had ended. His children uh, were alienated from him. Um, he was overwhelmed by the burden of his, his position and, and responsibility. And he sat, he said, on that beach and thought to himself that all of this was just nonsense. He was thoroughly, thoroughly unhappy, thoroughly, thoroughly defeated. And he remembered um, about the Christian faith from parents, from friends, from upbringing, I'm not sure. But he said for the first time in his life, the only place that he could look was up. And when he looked up, he found that there's a God who could bring meaning to his now otherwise meaningless life. No matter all that had succeeded in all of these realms, it brought no meaning. It brought frustration and despair. And only when he looked up to God could he find that that meaning could be restored into his life. So he was involved in doing some beautiful charitable works and was a delightful Christian man. But the pain of that past um, was still on his face as he would tell us the story. And I think he was exactly Kohelet. He was that type seven who was going to succeed and avoid any failure, any opportunity to fail in his life. Like Kohelet, he could also reflect deeply um, and, and reach out to the five that could perceive um, that his life was just wrong and wrong-headed um, and, and could understand the ways in which living a life appreciating all the good that it can bring because God is there with you in that life 
and appreciating that everything that you accomplish in that life is meaningful because now it is pointing ahead to an eternity um, where the way that you have used your time and resources will be assessed. And God will say, yeah, um, when you did that, I wasn't impressed. When you did this other thing, that, now that, that impressed me. So I don't know if you found your Enneagram yet or if you're still waiting for the right one. We've only, we have two more to go. Um, maybe it's one of them. Or maybe you travel in and out of them. And the identifying of those types is not the critical thing. More important, I think, is examining the characters in the Bible that kind of show them to us. And as Mary has said, how, how are you like that person? How are you not like that person? What do you learn about yourself? But I commend to you the book of Ecclesiastes and the Song of Solomon and Proverbs um, to just gain the wisdom that the Old Testament scriptures bring to us. They are not uh, yet studied that, mastered that, got an A in the class. They are, oh my goodness, it is still true. That is still a, a way to observe life and faith and God and humankind. And every time we experience that wisdom, um, we grow, or we can grow. And we can say, all right, whatever type I am, um, I'll take the best of it, throw away the worst of it, put away the notes about this and say, yeah, one time we talked about the Enneagram and I never did understand what he was talking about. So there we go. That's all for now.